Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm part of the staff here at Grace. And as we begin our learning time this morning, I'd like you to think back to your first ministry experience, you know, where you had a front row seat to the Spirit of God doing something amazing in another person's life. Do you remember that moment? Remember that, that individual? Maybe it was uh, you shared your faith with somebody who chose to, to trust Christ and, and to follow him. Or you, you pleaded with God to change a person and the spirit responded and a heart grew softer. Or you walked faithfully with a friend who was going through one of those darkest valleys and you watched as, as God overcame their despair with a supernatural peace. Does it get any better than that? I mean, I'm convinced that there is nothing better in life than ministry. There is no greater high than, than being a part of God, the creator, using you to impact the life and the eternity of, of another soul, of another human being. And in the years that I've been involved in ministry, there's a few things that I've learned along the way. There are three ministry truths that, that come from scripture that, that I've come to live by as a pastor. And I want to share those uh, with you this morning. I want to share those three ministry truths with you. And, and what I've discovered is that I think about one or more of these truths almost daily. Every decision that I make when it comes to, uh, you know, just encounters or, or ministry experiences that I have, they're going to be informed by, by one or more of, of these truths. And, and even as ministry leaders on, on staff, our conversations are often peppered by by these three truths that come to us from an Old Testament prophetic book, from a New Testament letter, and then one of the Gospels, all over Scripture. And I believe that if your ministry playbook only had three plays, these are the three you need. Does the Bible have more to say about how we're to approach ministry as believers? Absolutely. There's, there's much more in there. But I'd say if there were three truths that you were looking to to pursue, to stand on as you did relational discipleship with, with another person, these three truths will be a sturdy foundation for you, okay? They'll hold you, hold you steady. And, and it might help, I think, if, if we start this morning by defining what do I mean by ministry? What, how are we using that this morning? Ministry is, is loving someone by guiding them to become like Christ in all of life. It's loving someone by guiding them to become like Christ in all of life. That's what we mean by, by ministry today. And these three ministry truths, they're going to help you to do that to the best of your ability. These three truths will help you if you're mentoring someone, maybe a student in our youth ministry or a younger woman in our new Cultivate ministry. They'll help you to do that effectively. These three ministry truths, uh, they will guide you as you journey alongside a friend who's entrapped in some old sinful habits. These three truths will show you a way forward as you relate to your 19-year-old son or daughter who lives with you and, and is dealing with an addiction of some kind. Okay, and what difference will these three truths make in your life? They'll make, they'll make an incredible difference. They'll motivate you to minister, but at the same time, they remove the, the pressure and the anxiety that can come with interacting with another eternal soul. They'll help you to define success and failure in ministry. God can use these truths to pacify you in the midst of ministry heartbreak. These truths can be used to, to help you understand when your ministry to someone, it, maybe it's time to stop it. 
And there are times when the best thing that you could do is stop. So these three truths, they're, they're going to impact your ministry, but, but boy, will they change your life as you apply them to your, to your own life first. Okay, so you ready to hear them? All right. Well, hold on. The third ministry truth that we're going to share this morning, it's probably the hardest to apply, and yet I'd say the most important. So hold on for that one. Okay, what's the first truth? What's this first, first truth right out of Scripture that we find that, that can apply to our ministry as believers? Here it is. God's word never returns empty. God's word never returns empty. When the word of God goes out to someone, it always accomplishes his purposes for it. It never returns empty. And we see this truth in, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the prophets that was sent to the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And, and he went to Judah to call them back to God, to, to call on them to repent of their rebellion, turn back to the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord, he tells his people that his word that they are hearing will surely achieve what he intends for it to. Look in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. See what the Lord says. God says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word never returns empty. It, it always produces fruit. It, it doesn't return void. It doesn't come back empty-handed. God's word never returns empty. That, that's what we see in this passage. And, and there are two things that we have to see about the word and the work of ministry from Isaiah 55. And the first is this, that, that it's God's word, not ours. It's God's word, not ours. The Lord assures us in, in verse 11. He says, my word will not return to me empty. So you see, as, as you mentor a, a student in our youth ministry or, or a younger woman in our cultivate ministry, we have to remember that it's, it's the Bible, it's scripture, it's God's word that we're bringing, not our own. It's God's wisdom that we're sharing, not ours. And, and if it's God's word we share, then, then the Lord promises that those words won't be wasted. And, and then look at what the passage promises if we're sharing our word or, or our wisdom with another person. What does the passage promise? Nothing. There are no promises. Sure, there's real value in, in our word. There, there's value in our wisdom, perhaps. But God doesn't assure us that it's going to achieve any particular purpose that he has in that person's life. He says, it's my word. It's my word that, that won't return to me empty. And so if you're looking for a definition of ministry success, it's right here in Isaiah 55, verse 11. Ministry success is, is sharing God's word in love and leaving the results to him. It's sharing God's word in love and leaving the results to him. We leave it to him to make sure that his word doesn't come back empty-handed. It's God's word, not ours. That's first. Second is we see that it's God's work, not ours. It's God's work. Look again at verse 11. The Lord tells us, my word will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You see, our, our hope is never in our ability to change another person. Our hope is always in God to change a person. Our hope is, is set firmly on, on him and him alone because it's not our desires. It's, it's his purpose. It's his desires that he says will be accomplished in another person's life. 
And, and the reality is we don't always know what the Spirit of God is doing in another person's life. We don't always know what God's intentions are for a person, right? We're not always aware of that. God doesn't share that with us oftentimes. And, and that's what he's telling us just a few verses earlier, verses 8 and 9. You, you can see it in Isaiah 55. In verse 8, God reminds us, as the heavens are higher than the earth, he says, so, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, his, his thoughts are as high above ours as the heavens are above the earth. And right now, we may have the Perseverance rover 230 million miles away on Mars, but guess what? We have never transcended the gap between the heavens and the earth, between God's ways and our ways. And so, so we don't know oftentimes, right? We don't know what the Spirit is wanting to do in another person's life. And you know what? That's okay. God has said it's okay because he knows. He knows the work that he needs to do in another person's life. All that we do is, is, again, we share God's word in love and leave the results to him. We share what we believe the spirit of God is putting on our hearts to say to this person. And then we say, okay, God, it's all yours. You do what you want to do, not what I think needs to happen. Don't use my word. Use your word and use your work to change this person's life in, in the way that they need. Look, there are many times in ministry when you share you know, God's truth, you share the word with somebody, and, and especially when it's a tough truth, and, and you take a step back and, and you kind of see the effect that it's had, and it can look like you've done more damage than good. Right? Have you experienced that before? You take a step back and, and it looks like this person's life, it, it's, it's kind of like a yard of St. Augustine grass in early spring after you've taken a hard rake to it and gotten all that dead grass out. You've done that before? I mean, it, it, it looks for about four weeks more like a cow pasture than a yard, right? You can see more dirt than grass. It looks like there's nothing happening. There's no movement. There's no growth. It is dead. But if you'll just wait, if you'll just keep watering and you'll keep waiting for that four weeks, boom, it will burst back to life, right? And it will be green and it will be full and it will be beautiful, so much of ministry is lived in that four weeks, right? You've shared God's word with somebody. You've shared his truth with someone. And, and it looks like nothing's happening, right? Whatever's happening, only God knows because I'm seeing nothing good. Maybe even I brought more harm than health in sharing what I did. And, and we don't know. We don't see what God is up to. But, but it will look like, like absolutely absolute deadness, like, like there's no growth, no movement, no anything. And it can look that way for four weeks. Sometimes it takes 40 years. It took even longer than that for my Uncle Gary. See, at a, at a young age, he, he heard some of those truths about God. They were implanted in him. And, and yet, for the next several decades, mostly he left behind uh, pain and suffering in his wake. There were mistreated wives. There were neglected children. His life, most of his life, looked like the wreckage you see across a lonely field after a 737 goes down. And then at 55 years of age, he was told that he had late-stage cancer. And he was on his deathbed. And so my dad and I, we jumped in the car. We made the 1,000-mile trek to Iowa to, to be with him in his final days. And when we walked into his room where he lay, his first words to us, 
Or why are you here? And then those next couple of weeks, those, those words about God, those truths about the Lord that, that had been planted decades earlier, he heard those again at a deeper level. And his heart responded, boom. He trusted Jesus. He chose to be a follower of his. He became a child of God. And my dad said that, that after he had made that decision, he said that for the first time in his brother's life, he saw him smile. His snarled countenance softened and, and brightened because he was a new creation. Those St. Augustine runners had, had took, they'd taken off in his life. And it was beautiful. And that's what his final three days were like. And in ministry, the reality is that we don't often know the title of the chapter that God is writing in someone else's life until much later. We just don't know. God is the only one who knows what's happening when it's actually being written. And so what does that mean? It means that we can rest. It means we can trust that God is still at work when, when we see no movement, when we see no evidence of life. It means that, that we can have confidence that our Heavenly Father is still working when everything looks hopeless. You know what ministry success is? It's sharing God's word and love and leaving the results to Him. It's not up to us. It's up to Him. We let Him have that. The first ministry truth we have to grasp is that God's word, it does not return empty. When it's His word and His work, he will make sure it accomplishes what he intends for it to. And we can trust that. We can rest in that. There's a second ministry truth that we need to believe and apply. And that's that we can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. And we discover this truth in the letter to the Philippian church um, because pride and disunity were, were threatening this wonderful church that, that was so close to the apostles' heart. And, and Paul, he, he writes to this church, and in Philippians chapter 2, he, he paints this magnificent picture of Jesus' humble obedience to the Father. And then he calls on the Philippians and us, and he, he says we're to emulate Jesus by, by humbly surrendering to the good work that the Heavenly Father wants to do in our lives. And Paul tells them, look, we can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. That's how he writes it in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, my dear friends, my, my beloved, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You see it in the passage? We can't change without God. It's God who's at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. But he won't do it without us. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look, so much of Christian theology is, is separated by a single preposition. And, and this passage is a prime example of that. L look at the preposition that, prepositions that, that Paul uses here. Paul didn't say we're to work for our salvation, right? We can never earn God's forgiveness. No, he says we're to work out our salvation. And, and how do we do that? What does that mean? Well, look at the next preposition that Paul uses. Paul says God is at work in you. You see, in the Christian life, we're only working out what God has already worked in through the Spirit. God gives us this gift of salvation, and all we have to do is, is unwrap it and enjoy it and apply it with his help to every area of our lives. 
We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. And, and so that's what the Christian life looks like. And then this word that Paul uses for God's work in us is where we get the word energy from. He's saying, look, God is going to energize you. He's going to empower you to, to make these changes, okay? You're not, you're not on your own. He's the one who's, who's going to be doing that good work in you. And so you can, you can trust him. He'll, he'll even, he'll give you the desire to change and then the power to change. It's a work of God from beginning to end. We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. And as we minister to people, as, as, we, as we serve people, we've got to help them understand that reality. And what about the fear and trembling? Why are those involved? Where did those come from? Well, the reason why there's fear and trembling is because we work out our salvation in the presence of God Almighty and also in the face of these grave dangers of, of pride in our hearts and disunity in the church. Yeah, those are things to be scared of. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so, so as we serve others, as, as we minister to others, what we need to help them see is that, that look, we just do the surrendering. Okay? God does the energizing. We provide the willingness. God provides the power. We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. And we simply work out what he has already worked in. Christian growth, growth in the Christian life, it, it is putting your sails up and allowing the Spirit of God to blow through and take you wherever he wants you to go. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this. He, he likens the Spirit to the wind, and he says the Spirit blows wherever he desires. And so if you want God to be at work in you to will and to act according to, to his good purpose, you know what you're going to have to do? You have to raise those sails. You put those sails up, the sails that he has gifted to you, the sails that he will give you the desire and the energy to raise. You raise those sails and you watch as the spirit of God blows through your life and, and takes you to where he wants you to go. That's how, that's how Christian growth works. We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. About a decade ago, a buddy of mine and I, uh, we both realized that we were angry men. And we were tired of being angry men. And we didn't want to become angry old men. And so we prayed this prayer together. We said, God, I'm an angry person and I can't stop. I can't fix me. I can't do anything about this. I've, I've tried. You're going to have to step in. You're going to have to fix me. You're going to have to change me. And we invited him to do that. And, and then together we started basically the 12-step program. I mean, we just we took those 12 steps and actually we started the eight-step program because as we looked through, we realized we're already like four steps in here. We'd already admitted that we were powerless over our anger. We, we believed in the higher power. And so, so we jumped into this eight-step program and, and we, we raised our sails. You know, I took a personal inventory of my anger we went to every person in my life that had been significantly impacted by my anger, and I repented, and I asked for forgiveness, and we just followed the steps. I mean, it took us about a year and a half, but by the time we were done, wow, the Spirit of God had blown through and taken us to a place of greater freedom and peace and patience. And God's had to do that again and again in my life, usually right after one of my children was born, actually. Christian growth, it's raising your sails and letting the Spirit of God come in and take you where you need to go, whether you realize you need to go there or not. 
He will get you there. That, that's what it looks like. And, and look, you know, don't get me wrong. Surrendering to the Spirit, it hurts. It hurts bad. But the pain of surrendering is always less than the pain of staying the same or trying to fix yourself. The pain of surrender is always less than the pain of staying the same or trying to fix yourself. So you get after it. And you help those that you're ministering to to get after that. We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. So look, if you're helping a friend who's, who's stuck in some old sinful habits, your call to them is to hurry up and get tired. You know, tired of trying to fix themselves, sick of staying the same so that they might tag God in to do the work that only he can do. Exhaustion and fatigue, they can be wonderful companions if they are what motivates you to, to stop trying to fix it yourself and say, God, please, you got to help me. You've got to heal me. I can't do this. That's how we help them to put their sails up, that the Spirit of God might take them to, to where he wants them to go. God's word never returns empty-handed. We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. Do you believe those realities? They're true. And how about that third one? How about that third ministry truth? Again, it is probably the hardest to apply, and it's also probably the most important. And yet, if I'm honest, I'd have to say this is the one that I regret being true. But you know what? It is. It is true. And that final truth is, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Whenever we're working with somebody, whenever we're ministering to somebody, we always have to be asking, do you want to get well? That's what we're listening for. That's what we're seeking. And do you know why that question is so important? It's because Jesus asked it first. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 5, this is the question that, that Jesus asks a man who had been paralyzed. He'd been an invalid for four decades. And, and when Jesus comes in, before he tells him to, to pick up his mat and walk, he asks him this, this deeply insightful question, do you want to get well? And, and he wasn't just asking, do you want your legs to be restored? And we know that because at the end of the narrative, after Jesus had healed the man, in verse 14, Jesus tells him, he warns him, he says, you need to stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus was asking, do you want your heart to be well, not just your body? He was asking him if he was willing to give up whatever sin he was holding on to or was holding on to him, that he might be well, that he might be healed. And so this is the question that we always have to be asking those we minister to, especially when there's a sin that they're holding on to, is do you want to get well? Do you, do you want to be healed? And it's such a significant question because if a person doesn't want to get well, if they don't want to change, if they don't want to grow, they won't. It's simply not possible. Remember that last truth? God won't do it without us. He will not make us well against our will. And when Dallas Willard, when he writes about what does it take for a person to experience spiritual transformation, he says, look, there are three ingredients, and two of them we can't talk about today, but he says one of the key ingredients that you need to be transformed by the Spirit of God is intention. He says a person must intend to get well. Why is that? Because, because change doesn't happen by accident or by force. You have to intend to get well. And what's involved with intention? Well, two things. One is there has to be a desire to get well. And then second, there has to be a decision to get well. Okay, the emotion and the will both have to be engaged uh, emotionally. You have to desire. You have to want to be better, want to get healed. 
And then volitionally, you have to decide. You have to choose that with God's help, you're going to change. So emotionally, volitionally, you have to be engaged in, in those ways. It, it's kind of like learning to play the piano. Right? That always starts with someone who intends to learn to play the piano, or at least a parent who intends for them to learn to play the piano. You have to want to learn. You have to decide to learn. Spiritual transformation requires that we intend to get well. And, and then an important question is, how do you know when someone doesn't intend to get well? How do you, how do you know? What are the signs that tell you this person, it, it, it's, not, it's not time yet. They, they don't want to get better. They don't want to be healed. How do you know that? Well, I'd say there's two clues. There's more than this, but for this morning, there's two clues that I would encourage you to be looking for. One is if they're all talk and little action. All talk and little action. If you're mentoring someone and you're asking them to do things that will help them to get unstuck and they are agreeing to do those things but they are consistently not following through, they don't want to get well. They're not ready to be healed. The best thing that you could do is to hit pause, to stop meeting with them for a time. Be praying for them but you stop meeting with them because if you keep meeting with them, you're, you're wasting their time and yours. In fact, they may even be worse off because they think that they're checking off that meet with a mentor box and so they, they must be doing better and yet they're not. So if they're, if they're all talk, little action, it, it may be time to hit pause, to stop, to wait, to pray. John the Baptist, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is a person who talks repentance, but their tree is barren. So I'll talk a little action. Second is if the person is playing the victim. You know, when someone uses second and third person pronouns to talk about how you are to blame or how their spouse is all at fault, that's someone who, who's not ready to get well either. Okay, what you're listening for, what you're waiting for, what you're praying for is this turn that happens where they begin to use first person pronouns and they talk about how they're responsible. How, how I need to change, how, how the Spirit of God wants to transform me. That's what, you're, that's what you're listening for. And when you start to hear it, that's when you know they are ready. They've turned this corner, and they're ready for God to work his magic in their heart. And, and so you're listening for that. When a person's all talking a little action, when, when they're committed to being the victim, it, it, it's time to stop. It's time to wait. Okay? It's time to hit pause on that relationship and, until they get to a place where they intend to get well. And look, if this sounds harsh or unchristian, let's just consider for a moment how Jesus ministered. Okay, the one who was perfect love, Jesus, when he ran into a hard heart or someone who didn't want to get well, he didn't impose himself on them. He, he didn't force them to change. He didn't do that. In fact, did you know that the four Gospels recount 26 times 26 times where Jesus met a hard heart or someone who wasn't ready to get well, and, and he walked away, or he let them walk away. 26 times. Just consider that for a moment. You know, 26 times, I would have chased after the person because I don't know any better. But Jesus didn't do that. See, when our Savior, when, when he ran into a hardened heart, somebody who didn't want to get well, he didn't berate them. He didn't shame them, but he also didn't force change on them. He grieved, but he stopped too. See, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, 
but not everybody who's lost is ready to be found. And Jesus knew that. And so he was willing to wait. He was willing, willing to wait until a, a person intended to get well. They desired, decided, again, with his help, but they, they wanted to get well. They wanted to be, be healed. And so he was willing to walk away and, and wait for that moment, if and when it came. A, a friend once told me this. Never stand between a hard heart and their rock bottom. Never stand between a hard heart and their rock bottom. Don't save the prodigal from the pig slot. Okay, not out of cruelty, but out of love. A, a daily serving of pig slot might be the very thing they need to be hungry for the fatted calf. Never stand between a hard heart and their rock bottom. So if your 19-year-old son or daughter who lives with you is addicted to some substance or maybe just their own ego and they refuse help, it could be that the very support you think you're giving them is what is propping them up so that they are suspended three feet above rock bottom. It could be that you're keeping them from the very pain that God could use to bring them to their senses. And sometimes the greatest act of love that you could ever show as a parent is to put their belongings on the front porch and change the locks, all with tears streaming down your face and prayers going up to heaven. Do you want to get well? There's a time to stop, to allow space for God to work on somebody's heart. You stop, you pray, you wait, you grieve, you pray some more, and you remember this reality that, that God is still at work, right? It's his work, not mine. And so even when we stop, look, he doesn't. He doesn't. And then what do you do if the person hits their rock bottom and they cry out to God for help? And what do you do if they intend to get well, they desire and decide to get well? Well, first you rejoice with the angels in heaven. You praise God that the one who was lost is ready to be found. And then you dive back in, right? You join them in this journey of, of becoming like Christ in this area of their life or, or in all of, of their life. And, and you rejoin them in that because now you won't be wanting them to change more than they do. Now you won't be trying to fix them or, or work harder than they're working on, on the change that needs to happen in their life. Right now you're, you're a friend walking shoulder to shoulder down this path towards healing and growth that God wants to see in their life. Grace Covenant Church, you hear it regularly here. Every believer is a minister. And look, if you want to minister in a way that is most fulfilling, in a way that makes the most impact, in a way that will bring God the most glory, then you add these three ministry truths to the top of your ministry playbook. God's word never returns empty. We can't change without God, but he won't do it without us. And do you want to get well? We have to wait until they want to get well. Would you pray with me? Let's ask God to help us apply these truths to our lives and, and to our ministry. Father God, we are your workmanship, and you tell us that we have been created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that you yourself have prepared in advance for us to do. So, Father, I pray that you, uh, 
you'd give us the courage through your spirit to step into those good works, into the ministry you've prepared us for. And that as we walk through those doors, Lord, I ask that, that for each one of us, that we would be applying these three truths to our hearts, that we would be convinced in our own lives we'd be experiencing these realities, that your word, it doesn't return void, that, that we can't change without you and you won't do it without us, and that we have to want to get well. Lord, that as we apply those to our own souls, Father, that then we would be ready to apply them in, in the lives of others as we mentor them, as we disciple them, as we encourage them, as we support them. Father, would you help us to do that and to do it all with your power and your spirit living inside us. In Jesus' name, amen.